0: My name's Jeff, and if we haven't met, we'd love to get to know you. I got to meet some people for service, which was really cool. Uh, But you'll see, I think this will make sense as we go. Uh, I came across some creative ways to say something is out of order online. I got a few pictures. Here's a. We'll start mild. Creative way escalator is temporarily stairs, so that's one way to say it's out of order. Broked, apparently that's another way to say things are out of order. Broked. Uh, it's never been in order. I think there's a little frustration behind that sign, never been in order. Nope, I was one of my favorites. Just duct tape over, nope. Uh, sometimes when things are out of order, it makes life easier. I mean, your only option is Sprite at this point. You're not getting anything else. Sometimes I'm not sure a sign is necessary. It's pretty clear that something's not going right there. But my favorite out-of-order signs were for these emergency buttons. Look at this one. Out of order, please do not have an emergency, thank you. That's, I like that. Or this one, out of order, just keep running, just. And then maybe you've seen this one online, I think I've seen it before. Somebody put this on their copy machine, I'll read it. Yes, we've called the serviceman, yes, he will be in today. No, we cannot fix it. No, we do not know how long it will take. No, we do not know who caused it. No, we do not know who broke it. Yes, we are keeping it, and no, we do not know what you are going to do now. Thank you. <laughs> Out of order. So, Thanks for humoring me. But I I, I kind of did this because in this series, if you've been with us, we're talking about, I mean, the first week we talked about God as a gardener and how we're on this journey from a garden to a garden city, but we're really honing in on this intermediate place that the Bible, again and again, and we'll look at this again today, refers to as Babylon either by direct reference or just even thematically as the story unfolds. So we've been trying to find creative ways to say that the world is out of order. A few weeks ago, I introduced some language that I found helpful. I think many of you have found it helpful too. But we talked about the demonic, and in this series, we're, we're talking about the demonic as, as that which in our, in our lives, in our world, brings disorder. So the, de- the demonic brings disorder and chaos, and we feel it. it the world's out of order. But then we also kind of contrasted that a little bit with the, the craftiness of the serpent in the garden, the, the satanic, that the satanic comes along and rescues us from the demonic disorder into a false order. So it's still out of order, and that's part of the craftiness of the enemy. And I've been chatting with you, getting feedback, and I know, um, I know you feel the falseness. It's all around you. There's a falseness that prevails in society, and and what we're trying to do is is find language to name it, categories to understand it, biblical categories to make sense of what's going on. a few weeks we talked about how how even in Isaiah, this theme of Babylon links the king of Babylon with Satan himself. (laughs) so we feel the falseness, but we're trying to find language, because I'm afraid if we don't have the language, we won't even see it. And if we do see it, we'll be tempted to fight back, as we talked about maybe the first and second week, with the tools of Babylon and the ways of Babylon. And as we're going to talk about today, no, if we're going to follow Jesus and let him save our soul, (laughs) as we live in modern day Babylon, we've got to go forward in the means of the cross. We'll talk about that. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 11. If you've ever spent time in Genesis, you know that the first 11 chapters really function as one literary unit. Uh, In Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced to creation, the Garden of Eden. Chapter 3, you get the fall. And then from chapter 3 to chapter 11 is really the author's way of telling the story of how humanity just spirals out of control, (laughs) I mean, it's just this free fall into the depths of sin and depravity and chaos. Uh, like, really, hell on earth is really is, is really what you see. And Genesis 12 then begins a new literary unit where God begins a new thing with Abraham, and it's really good news, even though it's a long ways until we get to Jesus. But I want to I read a little bit from Genesis 11. I did a, 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 an origin story of sorts for the city of Babylon a few weeks ago, and this is kind of connected to how the Bible kind of presents the beginning of Babylon. I'll start in Genesis 11 verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. You might have a different word there in your translation, but the region really is Babylonia. That's why it's translated there here. Verse 3, pretty interesting, and I'll say this before I read this. I've been, in my own personal study of the Bible, I've been spending time in the first five books of the Old Testament, and I am becoming more and more and more convinced that especially in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the authors are assuming that you're reading this more than once. (laughs) There is no assumption that you only read it once. And so you'll even find things that are put in there early in the story that are, that don't make perfect sense, but as you read through the story, it makes more sense. Or you'll read it in Genesis and you'll think of Exodus because you've already read through this a lot because you've studied this thing. You know the story. This is one of those verses. Verse three. They began saying to each other, "Let's make bricks and harden them with fire." You could just stop there, but there's this parenthesis In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. If you've read through this, it instantly takes you to Exodus 1 in your mind in the Israelites as slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. So we're in Babylonia and we've got this community of people and it's just a little aside, but it's enough there to trigger. We start thinking of slavery. We start thinking of oppression. We, we start thinking of people being exploited so that other people can benefit from that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's in the story. Verse 4, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves. So, so much around this story of the Tower of Babel is this self-exaltation. It's part of the character of Babylon. With a tower that reaches into the sky. And it's a tower, it's a structure, it's a building, it's a temple. and And we'll talk about this. It's their way of trying to connect heaven and earth. Right, we were, humanity was introduced to life, to creation in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God, where heaven and earth come together, but we rebelled, we've been exiled from that, and God, God says he will, he's going to, to bring reconciliation, he's going to bring heaven and earth back together, but so much of, especially the Old Testament, is humanity's effort to get there without the help of God, <laughs> to connect heaven and earth on their own terms, in their own ways. Now, why do we want to do this? Well, they say here in verse 4, this will make us famous. We will have renown. We will have, we will have, we will have the glory. <laughs> and we'll talk about Babylon's glory as we keep going this morning. And it will keep us from being scattered all over the world. In other words, I'll be in control of my destiny. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll set the agenda. I'll control my story. I mean, that's what that's so much of the heartbeat of what's happening in the story and if you know the story, you can read it on your own. God is going to come down and bring confusion. I just want to read verse 9. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, He scattered them all over the world. Uh, and it, we, we know this story as the Tower of Babel, because the Hebrew word there is kind of linked to the word confusion. And so it's always... There's, there's a lot of meaning in there, but what's fascinating is if you were to keep reading through your Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, you would see that everywhere we encounter the city of Babylon, it's the same word there. It's just that Babel word in Hebrew, but that's Babylon. So we are in the throes of Babylon as we read through the story. Uh, it's a uh, people trying to, on their own terms, connect heaven and earth and exalt themselves and be in control and exploit others and to build human structures and turn them into godlike realities, I guess you could say. Now, as I said, Genesis 11 is the culmination of this opening literary movement. And we're getting here, because of that, we're getting a diagnosis of the problem of the human psyche, both individually and collectively, that has led to this horrible rebellion in Genesis. Why would we rebel against God? (laughs) And the story assumes it's about humans elevating their name, elevating their power, elevating their own honor, self-exalting themselves to the place of the gods, if you will. And in Genesis 11, the author has chosen the founding of the city of Babylon to be the archetypal climax of humanity's rebellion against God. And you're supposed to stay in the story. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and you know about their individual decision. But as we follow the spiral of depravity in the story, we move to a place where it's a very corporate move of a collection of humanity in Genesis 11. These people in Babel or Babylon are taking their way of life, their collective interests and accomplishments, and they're elevating them to the place of God, divine status. They're building a structure, and we'll talk about structures, maybe even use the Tower of Babel a little bit metaphorically, but they're, they're building a structure. It's a temple, it's a center of worship. And we're, and we're reminded, I mean, the Bible's this amazing story, and it gives a very sophisticated diagnosis of the human condition. Yes, our rebellion against God is personal, but as you read even just in these opening chapters of Genesis, it's going to go from personal to marriages, to other relationships, to families, to cities. And as you keep reading through the Bible, to communities and regions and whole nations where Babylon is the archetype but whole nations that are in rebellion against God. Many stories to read. And of course, this then takes it to another level because because a damaged marriage is bad, right? Conflict with a sibling can be bad. Neighborly fights are bad, but, but they typically only affect a handful of people. But what happens, well, think about this this morning, when a whole society, a whole collection of people, a whole society elevates its own values and its definitions of good and evil to divine status. The Bible says, in not so many words, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> That's what happens. And Genesis 11 is the depiction of collective human evil. Babylon's the archetype. And we see what happens when human, humanity collectively challenges God. And if you've been tracking through in the language and all the the themes are there, we've talked about how people can be snake-like. Well, in Babylon, in Babel, the whole community is snake-like. The whole community is in rebellion against God, trying to exalt itself. I told you what I'm trying to do in this series is give us language that helps us navigate the falseness that we're feeling. So let me try to say it this way. The satanic... You know, Satan's the king of Babylon. The satanic offers us what God has promised to give us. (laughs) Again and again, we see this in the Bible. Humans trying to claim for themselves or grasp or seize for themselves on their terms and their timing what God has already promised to give them. But we're just so impatient. (laughs) We want to get these promises without God. God's way is too slow or too inconvenient or maybe involves a little too much suffering or patience. We're not going to look at this passage this morning, but it's probably the clearest place where you see this if you know the story of Jesus kind of in battle with Satan in the wilderness. What the devil is trying to do with Jesus is to get him to be like God without the Father. (laughs) The temptation is to do what God is going to do in the world without God. <laughs> and part of what Jesus, I think, shows us, that God is the Father has promised to do these things for humanity, for the world, but how we go about doing it matters. In other words, in the kingdom of God, the ends never justify the means. The means are the ends in the kingdom of God, and this is one of the things I think we can still grow in as a Christian community, because as we've been talking about, we're so well equipped with the tools of Babylon that we will often justify evil, because we think the that doesn't work. You've already compromised way too much. Jesus makes this clear, and as we'll talk about even more why this is true this morning, the kingdom of God only comes by way of the cross. It's the only way it comes. It comes by way of the cross. So you and I are in a battle very much like Jesus was in a battle with Satan in the wilderness. But the means matter. How we fight in this battle matters. It matters. And we have extreme confidence because Jesus wins through the cross. And so we should go forth with great courage and great hope. So let's keep journeying. We're going to track this theme. I think that I really do. It's, it's really, I think it's there in the Tower of Babel story and even beyond. I, I, being in the first five books of the Old Testament, I didn't realize how much. But Paul is going to use this language. It's often, it's often just the principalities and powers. And I didn't realize how much he was getting that from the Old Testament narrative. I, I don't have time to show you all that this morning. That's a sermon for another day. But, but we're going to talk about the principalities and the powers. We're going to Just read a few verses in Ephesians, and then in a little bit we'll go to Colossians. But he's at the end of his letter here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I'll try even in a variety of ways to contrast with you a little bit the power of Babylon versus the power of the cross and what's true power and what's just a facade. What's just a game. We'll talk about that. He says in verse 11, and I I can even imagine him thinking through the story of Jesus in the wilderness, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. It actually is even in this series, I've been going back through the New Testament and I've, I've actually been surprised at how often we find these phrases, the schemes of the devil, the strategies of the devil. He's so crafty because we feel the disorder. And he comes as a false messiah, a false savior, to rescue us from the disorder with a false order, and we're not really free. We're still living in Babylon. Verse 12 is very important and one that I think we need to think a lot about because it's not the narrative that we're told in modern day Babylon. You and I are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. I'm not going to unpack that one this morning. We'll probably have to come back to that in a different sermon in the series, but I want to say it again so that you hear it. <laughs> this is from the Bible. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Paul says, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, often t- the principalities and powers. But I want you to see this this little dynamic, this tension. He then says against mighty powers in this dark world and then against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And so you still have this intermingling of heaven and earth that we've seen a little bit already in our series. Let's talk about these principalities and powers. There is real evil in the world. And Paul, along with actually I think every biblical author, sees these principalities and powers as animating the false order that you and I are trying to make our home. And maybe you, you, you look at this text and you say, well, there's dark powers in the world and then there's spiritual, dark spirits in the, evil spirits in the heavenlies. And so, so are, are they spiritual powers or are they structural powers within society? Humanity coming together to build a tower that reaches up to heaven. And the answer is yes. Yes, they are spiritual powers and they are structural powers within society. They get mixed up together. There's a demonic element and a human element. And you can't really separate the two. These are the power structures that order society. There's a lot that I could say, but because we're going to hang in the biblical narrative, we're going to focus... On three today, the political, the economic, and the religious. These are the centers at which there are enormous power in any social structure. They're the entities that really help frame and form society as human beings experience it. Structures we build to give us control over our lives, make us think that we are gods. Towers of Babel. They're centers of enormous power that tend to, you know this, right? Centers of enormous power, they, they tend to take on a spirit of their own. In the, in the world we currently live in, that spirit is almost always not good. And the more power the structure obtains, the more corrupt it becomes and the more destruction it brings. And I can say, this is, this is how Satan rules the world. And this is what he brings to us as a false order to rescue us from the disorder and the chaos. And I did a little bit of reading this week, as I always do, and one of the books I was drawn to is a book I highly recommend. It's by Andy Crouch. It's called Playing God. It's essentially a biblical theology of power. I like the book a lot because it's redemptive. It's good news in what power is meant to be for us as we are made in the image of God may give you a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and the responsibility before you as one made in the image of God. But in the book, he's also very honest about how power gets corrupted. And he has a section where he talks about the principalities and powers. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but, but just kind of listen in. He says, Why was the cross the site of Christ's victory over these demonic, pervasive, invisible, but powerful forces, these principalities and powers? The the answer may lie in something we do not always fully appreciate about the crucifixion of Jesus, just how institutional it was. The central institutions of Jesus' world, the Roman occupying army and its procurator, the Roman's client king Herod, and the religious establishment led by the Jerusalem Sanhedrin and its high priest, all play pivotal roles in the trials that lead to Jesus' condemnation. And in doing so, all of them are revealed to be deeply corrupt. The witnesses for the prosecution cannot agree. The overnight trial is a travesty of both Roman and Jewish legal procedure. It becomes clear that these institutions, far from safeguarding, flourishing, and protecting the innocent, which is what we are meant to do with the power God gives us, no, these exist only for their own self-preservation, their own self-exaltation, and the protection of the powerful. Perhaps it is not surprising that those whose offices require them to take responsibility for a judgment attempt to shirk it and hand the case on to others, the Sanhedrin to Pilate, Pilate to Herod, Herod back to Pilate, and finally Pilate to the crowd. Even the most powerful actors in these institutions have lost their ability to say yes to truth and no to lies. They are, to use Jesus' words, whitewashed tombs that deal death rather than bringing life, which is part of what I've wanted you to open your eyes to. That's, that, is, that is the ethos of Babylon. It deals in death and not in life. And then Andy Crouch goes on with a, a metaphor that could have been fun to play with this morning. He says they're zombies, <laughs> the walking dead. But let me kind of put this in my own words. What he's saying is Jesus goes head to head with the personification of political power in the person of Pontius Pilate. He goes head to head with the personification of economic power in the person of Herod, who many people believe that Herod was the wealthiest person alive in the first century, even wealthier than Caesar. And he goes head to head with the personification of religious power this religious structure in the person of Caiaphas. So let's pause and think about this. I just I want to I just ask some questions for you to just think about. What happens when the principalities and powers animate a political or an economic or a religious structure? What happens? My son's in seventh grade and he's been going through the world wars. And so sometimes I help him study and I quiz him on his vocab. And I'm reminded of World War I and World War II. Let me just ask you, what happens when a spirit of superiority, a spirit of self-exaltation, a spirit of domination infiltrates a government structure or political system? I mean, human history is filled with stories of the sorrow and destruction that come because a spirit of domination and self-exaltation takes over a governmental structure. <laughs> or what happens? I mean, I mean you can pick any economic structure that human beings have ever dreamed up. What happens when you take an economic structure, a way of arranging us, and you fill it with a spirit of greed? <laughs> what happens? And what happens to the people who don't have as much? What happens? <laughs> Or, as we unfortunately know all too well, really, in the last five years, it's not, tr- it's not, it's not limited to the last five years, but we certainly know more about it, what happens when you take a religious institution? It can even be a church, it can be a religious structure, and it's filled with a spirit of manipulation, a spirit of control, a spirit of fear, or intimidation. What happens? People get run over and hurt. I'm a lot of damage. Babylon deals in death and destruction. And I said earlier that part of the falseness that we feel is that the principalities and powers promise what God has promised, but they say they're going to bring it about by a different means. It'll be easier for you, more convenient. Let me say it this way. The principalities and powers, both in the past and certainly now in the present, they always claim to be good and just as part of the falseness. It's their propaganda claim, and for them it's their right to rule. This is why I should rule, because I'm good and I'm just, and what I will do is good and just. It will be for the well-being of everyone. I'm sure Pilate said that, maybe even believed it. Caiaphas. I mean, it's, it's just—it's—it's it's always been the line, without exception. It's the claim: we're good and we're just. We'll give you what God has promised to give you, but you don't need God. We're good and we're just. It's a lie, and it's part of the structure of the false order. It's a lie because these, these personifications, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, and all who come in their footsteps operate in a world, in a universe that is centered around themselves. And what they are most concerned about is maintaining their position of power. (laughs) And they use a propaganda claim of being good and just to justify before the masses what they're doing. The principalities and powers always claim to be able to bring order and deliver peace. We will make life livable and you will flourish and you will have abundant life. And then you and I come along and we believe the commercial or the politician. Yes, this is the one who will bring goodness and justice, but it's always a lie. It's always propaganda. And no one delivers on this except Jesus, (laughs) This is why I said a few weeks ago that it's the false order of the satanic that crucifies Jesus, not the disorder of the demonic. Because it really is, in the story, Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas representing their respective principalities and powers that conspire together to execute Jesus. <laughs> they perceive him as a threat To their power base. And I don't have a slide for this, but I kept thinking about this this morning. It's literally, and Matthew will use this language intentionally. It's, It's literally what happens in Psalm 2. If you haven't read Psalm 2 for a while, give it a read. Psalm 2, verse 2 The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. That's exactly what Herod, Pilate, and Caiaphas are doing. They plot together against the Lord's Messiah. And if you read through Psalm 2, any of us who buy into what Caiaphas and Herod and Pontius Pilate are selling, the joke's on us. Heaven's laughing. We'll talk about how we're all shamed in just a moment. This is the story of human history. This is what the, what the satanic does. This is the principalities and powers. They claim for themselves what the Lord has claimed only for his son. And as Christians, we affirm, we announce, we proclaim, we declare, we rest in the truth that Jesus alone is Lord. And that's good news. And it becomes even better news once you start to realize what's happening in Babylon and how you've been duped by the propaganda. Let's keep going. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10 and just say something quick, and then we're going to jump down a few more verses. I may come back to these verses because I think there's a lot here. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes this. Don't let anyone capture you. I love this. With empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense. That is awesome. (laughs) And this is what and feel the tension. I told you there's 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 spiritual reality going on, but there's also cooperation from humans in rebellion with God. He says this comes from human thinking, because we're so smart in the structures that we build, all our towers of Babel. And also the spiritual powers of this world. And he contrasts that with Jesus. And then he says in verse 9, For in Christ, this is a great, one, of the, one of the great ways to summarize the gospel. For in Christ Jesus lives all the fullness of God in the human body. In other words, we believe that our world is out of order and the God who created it with a beautiful order looks down and mourns over how out of order it is. And he's like, I'm going to fix this. And he enters into our broken mess as a human being. All the fullness of God is right there. And if you're visiting church and you're like, well, who is this God? Get to know Jesus because he is everything God wants to tell you. (laughs) Verse 10, so you are also complete through your union with Christ. And look at what Paul says. You might be thinking, well, but I live in modern day Babylon and it doesn't seem like Jesus is in control. Sure seems like the devil's in control. Well, Paul says you're wrong. Jesus is the head over every ruler and authority. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's patient. <laughs> it might frustrate you, but it's, it's good for us because we need time to awaken to his good news. He's patient, but he's Lord right now, and he's reigning, and you can rest in that, and you can trust him. But one of the things Paul is saying, and again, this is maybe something we need to come back to in a later message in this series Let me say it this way. Whatever new idea someone comes up with, some new way of arranging us or gathering us, I think you and I need to have the wisdom to pause and ask the question does it have Jesus, the Messiah, the one true Lord, as its center and focus? (laughs) Because everything else is just empty. (laughs) And if it doesn't, we need to be able to ask okay, is this good? And should I beware of this? Or let me say it another way. It's what I think he's saying in verse 10. If you already have Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you don't need to be completed by any other system. You have everything you need in Jesus already. His kingdom is what your soul longs for. Well, let's jump down to verses 13, 14, and 15. We're going to hone in on verse 15. Another great summation of the good news. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, but God made you alive with Jesus for He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now listen to verse 15. In this way, He disarmed. He stripped bare. He made naked. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This is important. Paul is saying that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the principalities and powers are defeated and no one who belongs to Jesus needs to be overawed by them anymore. Andy Crouch in his book says, This, I believe, is the reason that Paul saw the cross as the place of real victory over these principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities of his age and of every age. The cross disarms the reigning institutions of first century Judea by revealing them for what they are. They are instruments of injustice and they are implements of idolatry. Like all idols at the cross, they exact the ultimate price, demanding the sacrifice of the Father's Son in order to preserve their privilege. But in doing so, they reveal their true character. That's the character of Babylon. And God also then reveals His true character by allowing Jesus to give His life, by allowing evil, by allowing Babylon to do its worst to Him, so that you and I could enter into life. And he does this, Paul says, in public for all to see. And because of this, now you and I are given a choice between the power of the false gods of Babylon or the power of the one true God we call Jesus. (laughs) Paul says Jesus triumphs over them in the cross. And one of the things historically that we're told is that when, and it was either resurrectionists or escaped slaves, that's the people that were crucified in the Roman Empire, But when they were crucified, they were naked. You don't see that on your crucifixes for all kinds of reasons. (laughs) But when Jesus was crucified, he was probably naked. And and the mentality of Rome, right, this, this, this principality and power manifested in this governmental political structure in the first century, Rome, Caesar, his empire, the mentality is we are shaming this man who's claimed to be the king of the Jews. We're shaming him publicly he's been judged and condemned to death. What Paul is saying in verse 15 is awesome. It's, it's probably what's going on in Psalm 2 when heaven is just laughing, right? The kings of the world think they're triumphing, but really what's happening is Jesus isn't being judged or shame, it's the world. Paul says it's the principalities and the powers. Now, how does this happen? Well, One comes among the principalities and powers who is not merely good and just. He happens to be sinless. And we would say he is the, the truly just one. He's not just good. He's God incarnate. He's not just just. He's the incarnation of the righteousness and justice of God himself. So think about this. What do they do? They claim, we are good and we are just and we will give you life. But when one who comes who's truly good and truly just, they kill him. And if they do that to Jesus, what do you think they're doing to you? So wake up. Wake up. Don't buy the propaganda. We're good and just. We will give you a flourishing life. It's all garbage. It's the false order of the satanic. You think you've been rescued. No, 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 no. You're just living in Babylon. It's all death. It's all weeds. There's no life. And what does Paul say happens then? Because it's public. He says this is beautiful because it exposes the lie that the principalities and powers base all their claim upon. They say they're good and just, that they will give order and life, but the cross shames it and says no, because when the truly good and just came along, you murdered him. And all the propaganda they hide behind is stripped off of them. And they see that all they really have is a naked claim to power. And Paul says they're ashamed. They're judged, not Jesus. Another author says this. This is fun to think about, I think. As long as Jesus lay dead in the grave, the principalities and powers could congratulate themselves on maintaining a world ordered around the axis of power and propose a toast to the way things have always been. But on the third day, the father acted and issued his overturning verdict. He overturned the verdicts of Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. He overturned the verdicts of political power and economic power, and colluding religion. God vindicated his son and validated the revolutionary truth that Jesus proclaimed. In other words, the Supreme Court of Heaven overturned the verdict of the lower courts and raised Jesus from the dead. And that's why we have confidence. It's good news. They tried to humiliate Christ, and they will try to humiliate you, but Paul says they only humiliated themselves, (laughs) that heaven laughs, that they're exposed as pretenders making false claims, and you and I need to remember, we need to stand together, we need to stand firm that Jesus did not come to give the world the best version of Caesar's kingdom. He came to bring his kingdom. And he says very clearly in the Gospel of John, it's not of this world. It's different. And I hope you know that's good news. Because all the falseness you feel and can't name in modern day Babylon, it's all gone in God's kingdom. There's no falseness. It's all truth. It's all real. It's more real than anything you've ever experienced. That's the life that Jesus brings. So one more quote from Crouch's book, and then a little invitation, and then we'll pray and move towards communion. But he says this, what is being ridiculed at the cross is not power in general. I told you his book is a redemptive view of power. We're not talking about creative, image-bearing power. What What we're talking about is idolatrous power, the power which the principalities and powers have claimed for their own. But but church, as Christians, we believe that what is revealed at the cross is true power. It's a little bit upside down, it's paradoxical, but it's the power that willingly bears the pain of wounds and thorns. It's not self-exalting, it's self-sacrificing. That's the cruciform beauty of Jesus. The power that gives up even an only son in order to bring about life. That gives its own life. So that you and I might have life. To live after the cross and after the resurrection that vindicated the cross's suffering and sacrifice is to live in a world where the fundamental elements of the world, the patterns of life that bring fear and death, have been disarmed. No matter how deeply embedded these institutions have become, no matter how taken for granted they have been in their exaggerated promises and their rapacious demands, the cross has excavated them And ruined them. He says the zombies have lost their power to control and terrify. I want us to believe that and live as if it's true. The zombies of modern day Babylon have lost their power to terrify you, to intimidate you, to control you. The living dead have been overcome by the one who went to the grave and returned. That's real power power over death itself. and Jesus now lives to breathe life into those of us, He came to rescue. He's our true Savior. Let Him rescue you. So here's your invitation. The kingdom of God comes, I believe, through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then those of us who trust and believe and serve Him, living out by His means of the cross, what the character of His kingdom really is. So I invite you to believe this wild, outlandish, and crazy announcement that even as I announce it to you, the Spirit bears witness in your heart that this isn't false. This is true. This is true. That Jesus, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He went through Galilee announcing the kingdom of God, the government and politics of God. That he was betrayed by his own people. He was condemned and crucified by the Romans. And God the Father raised him from the dead and made him to be king of kings. And he's the one who's Lord over all the nations. So believe that. And get baptized. I'm talking to four more people this week about baptism. We're going to be having a baptism soon. If you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you've never been baptized, get baptized. And then belong to the kingdom and begin to learn to live, be discipled, live under the reign of Jesus, the Jesus way, the way of the cross. And then together, because we need one another, we will stand firm, we will resist Babylon. It'll be a counter-rebellion. We'll resist the powers and principalities. We'll resist the world being run the same way it's always been run. Because we confess that Jesus is king right now. And our counter-rebellion will look a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what it'll look like. And we will see life. We will drink from the fountain that never runs dry. And we will know a little bit more of what Jesus means when he says he's come to give us abundant life, life to the full. Oh, that that would be true for us, church. Amen?